Welcome to Dr. Cindy Speaks. Regular musings and reflections on politics, current events, and life as a congressional candidate. Dr. Cindy Banyer is a mom and small business owner fighting for our water, our health, our community. She's running for the people of Southwest Florida, trying to flip Florida 19 from red to blue. Listen as she speaks truth to power and gets real about being a mom and a candidate. Hello, everybody. I am Dr. Cindy Banyan, candidate for Congress in Southwest Florida, Congressional District 19. I'm a mom and small business owner, and I care about our water, our health, and our community. I am so happy to be here with you on this evening of March 26 at 9.30 p.m. I'm going to have a very special guest for you this evening, and we're going to wait on him to come and join us here. But as we start and just while we're waiting for our guests to get here, I wanted to just share a little bit about what it's like to be me and be a candidate right now in these very uncertain times and what's been going on with me and the world around us, just in case you're listening to this at a future date. So we are now experiencing the rapid rise in COVID-19 diagnoses here in the United States. In fact, just earlier this afternoon, we received word that the United States has now overtaken China to be the number one country in the world as far as the number of outbreaks. So that is a dubious distinction to be sure but it just tells you exactly where we are in this whole thing. So I'm safe at my home, which is nice. I have been staying here now with my three small children whom are ages three, uh, seven, and 10. This is kind of just similar to a second week of spring break for them. And So I'm not really taking it so seriously, but I've definitely kind of moved forward with my work, both my personal work, my teaching at the university. I'm a part-time faculty at Florida Gulf Coast University and also running my campaign for Congress. And it's kind of funny for me to look around and see, you know, friends sharing particularly on Facebook about how they are so bored and they've cleaned their house. And um, I mean, I have been running so many things virtually for so long as part of my regular, uh, you know, de rigueur in my career that this has not been a super significant shift for me in terms of my workload, except for now I have all three kids instead of just one. Uh, And usually even over the past couple of years, I've been able to have a babysitter for my littlest. So without further ado, let me go ahead and uh, say hello to my special guest this evening, Michael Bloomling Jr. He is a congressional candidate uh, and a Republican running for Florida District 21. 
situation. So he is a Republican running in a very Democratic district, trying to flip that district from blue to red. And I am a Democrat running in a very Republican district, trying to flip the district from red to we were able to find some common ground and work together on this particular bipartisan ballot requirement uh, initiative that we have been working on for the past week, trying to make sure that voters in the state of Florida have a choice when it comes to the primary election uh, later this year. We, um, many of us are, we are all non-incumbent candidates. We are folks who are working class folks for the most part. We are not self-funding our campaigns. So we were relying on the ballots petition to be able to qualify to get our name on the ballot. And you know, Florida, we really saw that opportunity completely diminish for many of us. So what started as a small group of just Democratic congressional candidates branched out over the past week to um, include uh, Republicans and Democrats up and down uh, this, the ticket here in Florida. So we have congressional candidates, we have state Senate candidates, we have state House candidates, and even now county commission candidates and uh, local candidates are reaching out to be part of this initiative because they have the same issue canvas and have events and get people to sign petitions completely evaporate. And then with the bottoming out of the economy, we really don't have as much ability to fundraise as we previously had. So anyway, Michael and I have decided to partner and co-sponsor this initiative. And for us, I think it goes beyond just the, the mission that we're on, which is making sure that voters have a choice here in Florida. But this is about coming together where we can across party lines. So now I want to um, kind of open it up, you know, and a conversation here with um, Michael Boomling Jr. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. And then why is it that you decided to join this initiative with me? So, Cindy, thank you so much. Thank you to your audience. I appreciate the opportunity. The American dream is all about people working together to foster a better tomorrow for future generations. I served in the United States Army. I was a non-commissioned officer. Yes, my name is Michael Blooming Jr. I'm running for U.S. Congress in Florida District 21 to unseat Lois Frankel. What I've realized is that we are really fighting globalism. It's really not about Democrat or Republican. It's about eliminating the middle class because when you have uh, one class of people, uh, rich and the poor, then the rest of the people are basically have to survive. And that's the imbalance that we're actually fighting. And that's why the initiative makes sense to me because I believe if you're not part of the establishment or the one percenters, so to speak, then you get kind of left behind. And actually, under the Florida current regulation and policy, I always has felt since I've been in politics, I've worked in federal government, state government, I've worked on boards in Tallahassee, advocated for veterans and community issues, ran the veteran program for the state of Virginia, helped create over 30,000 jobs for veterans and a bipartisan uh, working for the Governor McAuliffe when he was governor there before Governor Northam now. Um, and also uh, was an investigator for Department of Labor. So I fought for discrimination against women, minorities, individuals with disabilities, and veterans. 
And what I found at the end of the day is that um, the practice here in Florida, I believe, is very discriminatory. The ability to get uh, 1% for the federal races of the uh, in signatures. And, you know, for example, last summer I turned in almost 1,000 signatures and got credit for like 480. It was like 55, 52%, 52 to 55%. Uh, throwout rate and that was demoralizing as a grassroots candidate when you work so hard and you get a sheet of paper no really no real explanation no you don't get to see the ballots that were thrown out um and so i can only speak about my experiences but i what i've heard you know what i've seen down here in florida is that there is a lot of corruption and there is a lot of this uh you know so where subjective basically information exchange like if you turn in a ballot, you know, and, and it's missing a date or the signature is wrong or the address is wrong. It's like so, you know, so somebody may have wanted you on the ballot, but because one little piece of thing was wrong or, you know, somebody didn't want to put in the extra effort because it is 10 cents per verified uh, ballot for signature. So there is a cost component, too. So at the very minimum, in a perfect scenario, you turn in five around five thousand for my district signatures. That's going to cost you a thousand dollars. That's at a minimum, but it has to be verified. So what I came to the conclusion when that happened, because it was very uh, demoralizing, it really was. When you work really hard and you're trying to play fairly, and you feel like this system is rigged against you, that's um, harmful as a candidate. So you have to find up with alternative solutions. And so I came up with a solution to try to raise the funds. Well, when the coronavirus hit, you know, we had about six more weeks and I had just come back from CPAC. I was in uh, up in Georgia uh, with Doug Collins, who's a representative running for uh, Senate up there now. But he is in the House right now and he is a veteran like myself. And so I had, um, you know, I'm out doing my thing, running my campaign. And then we have coronavirus hit. So when that happened now. The ballots didn't work out because, you know, I felt like it was, you know, rigged process. I didn't think it was fair to candidates and especially grassroots candidates. And then now here I am trying to raise the funds and we have another obstacle. So I don't think that's fair to the voters in Florida. I think they should be able to have the candidate that's most qualified brought forward, not just the candidate who has the biggest bank account or who is the proclaimed paper champion, so to speak. I think that it goes against our Constitution. Our Constitution allows every individual who wants to try to make a difference in their community rise up, and that's at the local, state, and federal level. Yeah, absolutely, and I agree. And I think that's where we really started to find our common ground. So Michael and I didn't know each other before this initiative, just for anybody who's listening, but I had started sending out the, the invitation to all the, Repu- to all the Republicans uh, up and down the ballot, to the congressional candidates, to the state Senate and the state House candidates, and I just had it be an open invitation saying, hey, look, this is an issue that goes across party. Would you like to join on it? And, and Michael jumped right on it and we really connected around that, the constitutionality of it and the fact that everybody should deserve a shot to serve their community. And again, let the voters decide, right? Let's make sure that we um, are giving them an opportunity to not just have the person who was bankrolled 
going into the coronavirus be the only option they have when the primary rolls around. Um, we think that grassroots candidates have value, and that's why we have a petition process. Now, it is, I agree with Michael also, that it is a rigged process to a certain extent, that there are massive barriers to get in. The rejection rate of the petitions is high, so you can't just say, oh, I'm going to get 5,000 petitions. You have to expect to get 30% more than that, and you have to pay for all of those petitions, like he said, to be qualified and then sent to the state afterwards. So, it, you know, it's it seems like a very silly process. And I even actually have a bone to pick with how they even presented that to candidates. Because when you look at the website of the division elections, when it tells you which candidate um, the qualifying dates are, it gives you a range of dates. And for congressional candidates, it's April 20th to 24th. When If you just look at that and, you know, you started your campaign last year, you're kind of aiming towards that. Well, what you don't realize if you're just looking at that date that buried into the explanation in the candidate handbook is that you have to have your petitions in a whole month before that. So March 23rd is when the, the petitions had to be in. And as I was early on in this process, reaching out to candidates, there were several congressional candidates um, and not just like your kind of, you know, people who had no idea what they're doing type of candidates, but some very prominent candidates who didn't realize that the petitions were due on the 23rd because it is designed seemingly to be misleading so that you um, are behind the curve no matter what you do. Um, now, of course, I did actually run into another candidate who had qualified by petition last year, and I applaud that candidate's efforts. I really do. But um, for those of us that are running these bare bones operations, that's a really hard feat. I will say, um, you know, I always had my petitions just about everywhere I went. I had my volunteers asking people for petitions. Um, it's just, it's not an easy task. And, um, you know, especially without that really coordinated ground game, which we were essentially just spinning up ahead of the outbreak. So let's talk a little bit about that, though, because some of the things that Michael and I had connected on um, were really on the value of the bipartisanship. So I really would like to hear more from your perspective on that, Michael. Like why, why do you think that doing this bipartisan initiative now matters? Well, I mean, first of all, the American people should have the choice to decide. That's, that's a big factor for me. Um, if you, if you have a fair process, then I believe that the most qualified will move forward, uh, or you know, in this day and age, it's it is really a, a lot about money, but it's also about mudslinging. I don't attack people on character flaws because I believe that we're all imperfect, but I do attack people on their policy and things that are detrimental to what they're going to bring to Congress. Um, several. You know, I feel like, honestly, your own party is more of a detriment than the other side. Uh, if you get through your own party, I feel like then it's it's like that's only the first part of the war. And then then it's like step two. So it's like there's a lot of different wars that are going on running for Congress. A lot of people don't realize these things. Um, I have a lot of global experience. so I'm kind of built for this kind of thing. So it doesn't phase me. You just have to be in the solution business. And that's where. 
expertise and experience really comes into play as, as a grassroots candidate. Because if you're not in the inner circle, you're not part of the establishment, if you haven't been recruited, so to speak, into a particular district to run, like my opponent has been, then you're going to be on the outside looking in. They're going to make it extremely difficult. And I can only speak to Republican side of the House, but I'm sure it could be similar to the Democratic uh, side of it. But one of the things I found is that I believe that, you know, I don't know if this is true again, but Democrats seem like they're more coordinated working together, whereas, you know, I feel like in the Republican Party, um, I'm not going to change my value system regardless of who supports me, who doesn't. But I do believe at the end of the day, there's two ways to earn respect as a candidate. You either, um, you know, have respect. Basically, people have known you. You have brand name recognition and people respect you. Or if someone has a problem or they don't like you or they set out to try to destroy your name, you rise above the fray and you do what you do and you showcase your knowledge, skills and abilities and they will respect you. The voters will respect you. And that's really what it matters about at the end of the day, not not particularly the party. And that's how it's easy for me to work together. But also, I was trained in the United States Army by the most elite freedom fighters in the world for, for uh, military under the Department of Defense. I was a non-commissioned officer. I was born in Fort Benning. My whole family served. So I know and I have very extensive training that helps me to overcome some of these barriers and that's a threat because when you when you bring something to the table, a lot of in politics, unfortunately, a lot of great candidates are just swept aside and they're kind of washed away. Um, whereas there's a lot of work that goes into this. I've been working on this election for over two years. I've had countless hours, resources, money that I put in um, and sacrifices, a lot of them. And to have something under a national emergency or, you know, a technicality or a barrier that's self-inflicted by an outside entity because, you know, they, they have an interest or they have, you know, they want to keep the status quo or they want to keep, you know, pay to play going, then that's what, you know, candidates are fighting. And so when we band together and have uh, fairness, you know, I'm always a person you know, life isn't fair, but if you can create an environment where you can have as much, you know, equal opportunity, I think that's good for everyone. I support yeah. that. In Congress, you have to work together with your colleagues um, across the aisle. You know, I don't view that as a bad thing, but I'm also not going to compromise my value system. So with Cindy and myself working together on this initiative, it's only going to help the state of Florida. It's going to have a positive outcome. So for us to work together, it's a positive any way you look at it all the way across the board. There's nothing negative about that. And as you can see and people can see, people can work across the aisle whenever you have uh, civilness involved. But a lot of times with politics, as I mentioned earlier, it comes down to mudslinging and personal attacks. And I'm just not into that. I have character. I've worked extremely hard in my life. I have a million accomplishments. At the end of the day, I want to have a better community for my children, better schools, better jobs, better economy, and better national defense. So those are the things that I'm fighting for. Yeah. Well, so there's a couple of things that struck me about what you said. So I, I thought it was interesting 
and maybe it's kind of just the, you know, the perspective, the outside looking in kind of thing, because I would quite easily say that Democrats look at Republicans and think that they're much more organized um, than us in terms of their their messaging and their consistency. So I think it's kind of interesting that you look back at the Democrats and think the same thing. So maybe we're all just kind of um, not quite as organized on the inside as we give the uh, impression outside and that could be good or that could be bad. I don't know. Um, but I will also echo that I, I have uh, the same or very similar experience running again as not a candidate that somebody invited into the race. I wasn't chosen or groomed or, you know, I just had been working in my community for a long time and decided, Hey, I want to take the next step into leadership because I think they need somebody like me. I have skills to offer. I have commitment to my community and let me let me run this race. And I felt very Pollyanna about it in the beginning because here I am. I think I have this. I'm a great candidate. I have a great resume. Uh, you know, there's all these positive aspects that I think um, they're just waiting for me was my my initial response or my initial inclination. So I went to my local party and I said, I want to run. Here I am. And all I got was pushback. It was very, very shocking to me. Like I said, I was very Pollyanna about it because I just thought, you know, we're in a red district. So they're just waiting for Democrats to stand up and do something. And here I am, I'm going to stand up. And I, it's, I got the exact opposite reaction. And I think it's kind of pushing on some of what Michael was talking about is that there's this kind of establishment and there's a machine and there are people and it's not even necessarily all of that all the time, but there are people with vested interests and they want to maintain those interests. And when somebody's coming from the outside, they don't like that and they want to, you know, you're a disruptor for them. And so I think that Michael and I kind of share that experience of having been the disruptor. We weren't the the promised one. We weren't the the one that everybody uh, was waiting for. We just thought that we were good candidates and that, we wanted to serve our community and that's how we ended up where we are. Um, and so that's why we started working on this bipartisan initiative. Um, I also think that the other thing that Michael had said that was very interesting to me is again, coming together where we can, you know, Michael and I have just met, we're running on opposite sides of the aisle. It is very clear from our policy platforms that we're not going to be agreeing on every single thing. You know, we're not going to be co-sponsoring <laughs> certain areas of legislation. It's just not. But here's the thing. Through this process, we've connected with one another. We've had cordial conversations with one another. We found a common cause and common mission that goes beyond party that really is about creating equality and ability for candidates across the state of Florida to run and be elected to give the voters a choice. And um, that is important, right, that we were able to find that. We also have built a relationship around this. And this is actually something that I as a political you know, science. I'm part of the political science and public administration department at Florida Gulf Coast University. I've done a lot of research. I'm a reader. I'm just a political person when I read and, and when I look at all the situation that's going on around us. And I have lamented this situation, this fact that there is this massive divide between us. 
And it has to go back to this relationship. So if we do not create situations where people from different parties are coming together and sharing and exchanging ideas and finding a common mission, even if it's just for that one thing, we never develop the relationships. Like working on a team, you develop a relationship with somebody. You can call, you can email, you can text. Again, you're not going to agree 100% on everything into the future infinity, right? But you can find common ground right then and there. And you develop a relationship that makes it easier when you disagree, I think. And so this is something that uh, a lot of scholars have looked at and said had started to diminish when um, in the mid-90s, they changed up the way the U.S. House of Representatives worked to make it a split session, essentially we're operating from Thursday, Tuesday to Thursday, so candidates co- or Congress, Congress people can go back to their district. Now, I love the idea that we're going back to our district and connecting with people, but what it ended up doing is eroding the relationships that candidates had with one another, particularly across the aisle. So going back to Michael, I just wanted to hear some more thoughts on this. So why now? Like, I really feel like our work here on this bipartisan initiative is super important for where we are now. Do you see that in your campaign and your aspirations that having a bipartisan initiative as part of your work being really important and that how does the time relate to that? Well, for me, it's really simple. Whatever is going to be in the best interest of the community within the framework of being a legislator and doing good work and eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse and making sure that the community is thriving, making sure we have quality health care, making sure that our schools are safe for our kids, making sure that the workforce and economic development is occurring. These are the kind of things that are really important. And also being able to communicate with the voters and have them understand that, you know, not everything is going to go the way that we would like it to do, go. And also, if you get one or two bills across in your lifetime that you are a sponsor on, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So people, I think, don't really understand the full scope. And that's where we can do better is we can educate people. And I think opportunities like this allow us to educate the voters because the reason that education is a big key is if you educate people, they can make conscious decisions. And when people are left in excuse me, when people are left in the dark, then they're not able to make a clear decision. And that's what we're facing as a community. A lot of voter fraud occurs. People aren't understanding how important poll watchers and poll workers are. People don't understand what it, you know, what it means to actually cast your vote and, and the impact of your vote. And so that's why you see these districts that are way out of balance because I think if we had education that a lot of these D plus 15 or R plus 15 seats, it would be more middle of the road. But because of misinformation, propaganda, and I think that's where we could work together is to ensure that we, you know, have a a civil nature to, yes, we want to get our point across. You know, I don't, you know, I don't like uh, radical left and I also don't like radical right. I don't think it's good for America. I'm a person that believes in the Constitution and I think we have to fight for the Constitution. If someone on the left believes in the Constitution and the American flag and freedom, 
then they'll be my friend just as much as somebody that is on the right that loves freedom and the American flag. If you don't like freedom, you don't like the American flag, then uh, I can't support what you're doing because not only did I serve our country, but I've seen people make you know sacrifices to live the American dream, overcome adversity, drug addictions, you know, behavioral health, all the different things that are happening in our communities, and a lot of these things are pushed to the side because there is a financial component. We do have a lot of corruption. And I want to be a candidate and also a member of U.S. Congress, and I will be a member that fights for the community and doing what's right. And I don't necessarily need a kickback to do that. I just need to know that the you know that it's it's not really even about a popularity contest or you know, but there is approval rating. People are watching your voting record, and and if you run on a platform, that's what I ask any candidate as a voter, as a constituent. You know, uh, taking myself out of being in politics, all I would ask for somebody to do is is follow up and, and you know, promises kept, promises made, basically. But it doesn't seem like people that run on a platform that they follow through. Now, there is a lot of red tape. It's very difficult to get things through. But if you have the fortitude, I believe that you can move the needle. It may be slow, but you can still get the work done. And you you got to believe in something higher in yourself, and, and I have a strong faith. And so for me, working together is a great opportunity because it shows the state of Florida that there's great candidates who are not the favorites, that are not, you know, the darlings, the paper champions. There's candidates who are grassroots candidates who are doctors like yourself, who've been entrepreneurs like myself, who are educators, who are you know, facilitators who are, you know, great public advocates and community advocates and activists and, you know, so many different elements than just, you know, what's on the surface. Yeah, absolutely. And I, another thing that you were talking about earlier that really um, I resonate with is that we are, this is actually what you do, by the way, you know, when you are, a congressperson, you are looking for common ground, you're rallying your support where you can, you are, you know, crafting messaging. Then, you know, when you actually get down to the legislation component of it, you need that technical component, uh, you know, technical expertise on that. But what the, the exercise in bipartisanship that Michael and I have been engaging with this week is really demonstrative of the work that will really need to be done when you get there. And I will speak for my district in particular. We have had a series of um, representatives who really fundamentally did not understand that, right? They were the, you know, so to speak, outsiders. They just thought it would be interesting or fun or, you know, self-aggrandizing to become a representative. And they get to D.C. and they fail to realize that it is this grind. It is calling, texting, emailing, messaging, convincing, influence, and um, and, and and working the the relationships that you have in order to be able to get what you want across. And and so you know this is one of the reasons why I was uh, I engaged in this activity right now. This um, this mission to stop the barriers from grassroots candidates because it really, really shows, I think, 
outwardly what needs to be done to be successful in this seat. I think it shows that I have a commitment and a willingness to communicate across the aisle. Like I said, in a district where I'm trying to flip from red to blue, I need to convince people that I am not just a partisan hack, that I am willing to work around the issues. And a bipartisan initiative helps me to demonstrate that. And um, especially something that goes beyond just myself. So now, like I said, we have the 35 candidates around the state of Florida who have signed on. This will have long lasting ramifications, not only just down ballot to local elections, but potentially even into the future. And now this is where I want Michael to kind of come back and talk about this because we initially connected on this as well. These ballot requirements prior to the outbreak were crazy. They really were. They were exceedingly high compared to other states. They, the ballot requirement was very high. The qualifying fee was very high for all of the candidates. It's way outpaces other states. And so it really does come down to the fact that you have to be a, a very wealthy and well-connected person in order to really even have a shot out of the gates to become an elected official in the state of Florida. And so this was something that the overall structure of it was something I know that really you wanted to call attention to, Michael. So can you tell us a little bit more about what is it about those requirements that really got you going? Well, yeah. And I also want to start off by saying is, you know, one of the things about me is I have a high level of integrity and it is a case by case basis. So, you know, it's it's not like you can go out and work with everyone from the other side of the aisle. Uh, for example, the person that I'm running against, Lois Frankel, um, I, I would not be able to have a conversation with her. We I was at a town hall with her a couple weeks ago. Her outlook and my outlook are completely different. And I don't like, you know, so it is specific to the individual and what they're trying to accomplish. So everybody has to realize that that even though Cindy and I are able to work together and we're getting this through and this may cause a big windfall and, and huge opportunities for future candidates in the state of Florida, regardless of the outcome of our individual races, this could have big long-term effects. And, and I think that's fantastic. But people have to realize that this isn't, this is, you know, this is not the norm. This is more of an anomaly um, you know, but the good thing is, is that there are good people that want to do the right thing, but you just can't let the politics change you. That's really what it comes down to. Um, as far as, you know, as what, what was, I'm sorry, I just want to get that point off. Can you rephrase the, the question? That's really important. Yeah. It's really important to recognize that because, you know, one thing about me is, you know, if you're a Democrat and, and you're a Democrat, Run as a Democrat, vote as a Democrat, you know, do the right thing. If you're a Republican, you know, do the right thing, vote as a Republican. Um, that doesn't mean you can't, you know, have, uh, you know, relationships and friends with other people. Because uh, behind the scenes up in D.C., a lot of times these Democrats and Republicans are actually friends. It's just through the media that it's portrayed that they're not friends. But there are people that... Uh, like I'm, I'm not going to get along with radicals in Congress. If someone has an agenda that, and they're going to support legislation that I view as radicalism, I will never 
yeah, I wouldn't even have a conversation with them. Now I'd be willing to talk to them. But most of the time, people are set in their ways and they're not going to change who they are. I'm more, I'm an open-minded person. I will listen to another person. I don't want to force my views on them, but I don't have a tolerance for people that want to force their views. And I think that's what great is great about this initiative is that we're giving people the opportunity. Do you want to be involved with this initiative? And if you do, we're going to move forward. We're going to fight for you and, and your voice. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think what I can say in response to that before I re-ask my other component of the question is I think that it's important from my perspective and that's very important for me and my campaign is to show that there is that space for, for conversation and dialogue that, you know, I, I have my set of values that I bring forth and I'm going to convince people that my perspective, um, matters and is important and I I can back it up, but I'm going to listen to what other people say. And I never um, get upset about somebody who disagrees with me for the most part. Right. And I will, I will attribute that wholeheartedly to my father (laughs) um, whom I love dearly, but who I, we always have quite divergent opinions about things. And we have spent, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours of time debating and, you know, going around and around issues. Um, and I uh, had really cultivated my, my ability and capacity to explain myself, not get upset about things and continue to have a dialogue to push my point with it. Cause obviously in a, like a parent and child relationship, you, you know, dad can usually always just, you know, say it's my way or whatever, you know, my favorite, my dad's favorite line, by the way, I was always like one day when you pay taxes, you'll understand and, um, you know, here I am an adult paying taxes and I still think the way that I think. So <laughs> that wasn't apparently the, uh, the, the, the barometer of uh, shift in, in major opinion for me. Um, however, like I said, because of that experience, because I have valued relationships uh, that don't share 100% of my opinions, that I um, engage in conversations that necessarily are a little you know, they might be uncomfortable to some people, but I can, I can have those conversations and I can acknowledge people where they are. I think that that skill, and that's what um, Michael was saying too, is that when you have that ability, that's a very important thing to bring in Congress because we're going to need people like that, that can broker conversations, um, even when, you know, there are stark lines between some individuals. So my, the, um, the second part of the question, Michael, that I wanted to kind of send it back to you on is um, what components of this are um, valuable to you right now? So what, why, you know, and I think, like I said, cause you and I are kind of like the, the opposite, you know, you're, you're, you're going, you're trying to go blue to red. I'm trying to go red to blue. And so we kind of have this necessity to demonstrate some potential bipartisan credibility here. So, um, and also given the context of what we're looking at here in the United States right now. So what, is there anything right now that's really kind of saying, this is what we need to do for you? Well, this is what it comes down to. And that is that something that's fair and impartial. I've always just believed in fairness. I know, you know, a lot of times we don't have fairness. Life isn't fair. You hear it all the time. But you know what? We 
that that shouldn't preclude us from having the opportunity to actually exercise our beliefs, our value systems. And I think that, you know, something like coronavirus, whether it's a biological weapon or, you know, it's a, it's a mad, you know, experiment gone bad and, or, you know, it's just, you know, the evolution of science and, and some, you know, virus that, that's grown and, and we've dealt with these in the past, whatever the case may be, it's a, it's actually a, it's like the perfect storm, the perfect timing where we have the ability to actually address something in a manner that allows us to change something for the better. And I think that's what it is. It's when you see something that's, you know, it's like if, if you see a crime in your community and you don't report it, you know, it's like you're an accomplice, basically, mm. you know, we're. We, we know that something is out of balance, right? And so now we have the coronavirus, which has brought us forward, and it allows us to address it. So I don't view this as a, um, you know, just something that's out of the blue. This is something that is, it's the right time. And that's what it is. Timing is everything in life. Because, you know, it's easy for people to look on the outside and say, oh, well, you know, you had all this time and you didn't get the signatures or you're lazy or, you know, it, it's easy to criticize someone, but when you're actually going through it and you understand it, that's the opportunity we have is that we're on the inside and we've experienced it either right side of the aisle, left side of the aisle. Um, it's really irrelevant. It's just understanding that there's a challenge there. And now with the coronavirus though, specifically, it has created a barrier and now, not only do you have um, a, a process that's flawed, we have a flawed process, it favors a certain group, that's what discrimination is. Um, you have anecdotal evidence that it is discriminatory, right? And so now we have a barrier that further precludes grassroots candidates. So now the ability for us to come together, it's heightened, it's even, it's even a, a bigger opportunity to showcase our awareness because now... It's not about, you know, exposing a flaw in a process. It's about actually showing and showcasing how it is actually just causing a disruption in the election process in Florida. And that's the real problem. And that's what we're going to be able to work through. And as a result of that, I believe we're going to be able to solve some of the problem that was the underlying problem that without coronavirus, it would have been status quo business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And, um, that we need to address this. And, you know, I was looking out on this overall. And one of the reasons I took on this initiative too, and expanded it to all the various candidates here is that I was really very worried that everybody would be so distracted with what was going on with the coronavirus, that this would kind of fall to the wayside, not only just the, the extreme barriers that were put up to prevent candidates from qualifying, but that, I mean, like I said, the, the elections offices were closed. So let me just kind of reiterate that there, even if I, if every single candidate that was trying to qualify on, on March 23rd had their stack of, of petitions ready to go, had their check to pay, for the you know the verification fee 
they couldn't get into the office. Now, some places were making certain exceptions. And then even if you called and asked them, they said, oh, well, we might take it or we might not. We don't know. And we don't know if we can verify them or how long that's going to take. So we're talking about a total kind of collapse of even the capacity of the varying components of this government administration to be able to handle this process. So that being said, that it was just going to be ignored. So that kind of deadline came and went. There was no communication, by the way, to candidates as to what to do. There was no, okay, hey, the deadline's coming. Sorry that the offices are closed. This is the procedure. That didn't happen. It was really just going to be ignored. And until, you know, I started making noise about it and realized that there were all these other candidates across the state of Florida who were really um, blindsided by this on, on so many different levels. And now we're looking at just this, you know, inability to be able to process and get into the process that the state is essentially ignoring, right? And there's all these other election components too, by the way, you know, what is going to happen with the primary? How are we going to be able to um, get ballots? Or is everybody going to be um, you know, vote by mail. And then what happens then? Because by the way, when you vote by mail, that's got to go somewhere. How are those people going to be able to process it? Um, and things like that. So the, it's really, this is part of just not only the, the bipartisan reaching across and getting people on board, but it's really just the first kind of, you know, stick in the sand, so to speak, to make sure that our government is being held responsible to be responsible for the elections process, to not just let it fall by the wayside until, oh, lo and behold, we're at primary day, we're at general election day, and no one sat down to think about how we're going to get people to vote. No one sat there and thought about how we're going to get people on the ballot and how that's going to work properly. And um, we're making this case right now so that we don't get so far down the road that it's too late right? We get into July, August, and nobody said anything. Now all the down-ballot candidates, they can't get on it. You're looking at really the, the complete lack of voter choice at that point. It will literally be only the people who could pay. And it will be up to the, to the administrative components whom they have functioning and where, right? Because these got to be printed. They have to go. It's a very elaborate process. And I understand that we're under a massive amount of disruption and emergency. We're a national disaster area. So there's a lot of things going on. But we're holding the torch to ensure that this does not ultimately destroy our democratic processes because we were too busy to think about it. Because there ultimately will be bandwidth for it to be thought about. And that necessarily may not be today, but there are people in our government whose entire jobs it is to watch this. And they're likely sitting at home, you know, maybe not without anything to do because they don't have the direction from the leadership to act. And that's really what we're asking. That is why Michael and I have banded together to co-sponsor this initiative. This is why we've reached out throughout our networks to gather all of the other candidates on that so that we can continue to make sure that voters have a choice, that we have a functioning election process, and that there are people who are essentially minding the shop as everything else is kind of falling apart. And that's not to diminish the other things that need to be done. 
other things need to be done, but everybody plays a role in it. And Michael and I are really taking this democratic process on as our role of upholding throughout this, uh, out this crisis. So uh, before we end uh, tonight, Michael, I just wanted to say thank you for joining. Is there any last words that you want to leave with our, with our audience um, bearing in mind that we are, a very bipartisan audience here um, that we, uh, you know, just leaving it us with some parting thoughts here, um, given what's going on in the world today, as well as our initiative together. No, I just think it's important to support great candidates who the community gets behind and who they align their value system with and who they believe will make uh, the right decision with their vote for their lives and their families. So anybody listening to this, I just ask you to um, support my campaign if what I'm saying resonates with you, if you believe in my message, if you want a veteran in Congress. I am running in District 21 against Lois Frankel. I am a Republican. I served in the United States Army for four years honorably. Um, You can go to my campaign uh, website, bloomlink2020.com. You can also connect with me on Twitter. We need donations um, in light of what's happening. We have until April 20th to pay the $10,440. So if you can help my campaign, you can support my campaign. It would be uh, really important because um, what people don't realize is that you can, you know, you can support whoever you want to. You can be a Democrat and you can write a check to a Republican. You can be a Republican and write a check to a Democrat. Um, there's no rules to this. I believe the only rule of thumb and, and why I serve this country is that you're giving the best opportunity to make the choice that you see best fit for you and your family for candidates. And these these races do affect people. So Cindy's race and my race will affect other people in America if we were to win based on our value system. So Just thank you for the opportunity, Cindy. I'm looking forward to us actually doing some great things, getting more press. If there is press that's listening to the interview or are going to listen to this interview, please support what we're doing. Help us to fight the battle and give the American people an opportunity to choose the best candidate for them and their families. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much uh, for that, Michael. And, uh, you know, I appreciate um, anybody who is willing to put themselves out there to run for office, to put their values out and to be willing to fight for them. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on here tonight. And I appreciate you being um, the the co-sponsor and co-champion of this bipartisan initiative. Uh, it is um making the fight a lot easier, I would say, you know, to have somebody else uh, in the in there with me. So thank you so much for being there and being here with me tonight. And thank you so much to all of our listeners, both live and uh, later on. We so appreciate you uh, being here. And um, I will also just briefly echo, you know, also, my campaign needs some assistance. Uh, we always do as grassroots candidates. You can follow me on Twitter at SWFLMOM2020 and the same on Facebook and Instagram as well. And, uh, you know, if you got a little bit extra to help a grassroots candidate, always appreciated. So thank you so much, Michael, once again, and have a good night. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Dr. Cindy Speaks. If you'd like to learn more about her campaign, go to cindybanyer.com or connect with her directly at vote at cindybanyer.com. We love connecting with people. Contents of this podcast are paid for and approved by friends of Sandy Banyer.